At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Catch those springtime vibes all over Arizona. Break out of the winter blues by hitting the water at one of our lake and river parks. Take a hike among the wildflowers. Just make sure to stay on the trails and leave the flowers for the bees. Discover Arizona's best kept secret and visit azstateparks.com slash amazing to start your springtime adventure. Intuitive eating is a personal process of honoring health by listening and responding to the direct messages of the body in order to meet your physical and psychological needs. It is an evidence-based mind-body health approach comprised of 10 principles and created by two dietitians, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. You are listening to Veggie Doctor Radio, and this is episode number 171. Welcome to Veggie Doctor Radio. I am your host, Dr. Yami, board-certified pediatrician, certified lifestyle medicine physician, certified health and wellness coach, author, speaker, mother, wife, and human being. I passionately believe in the power of diet, habits, and mindset in sparking and sustaining well-being and joy in our lives. This podcast combines expert interviews and thoughtful monologues to explore plant-based nutrition, lifestyle medicine, parenting, mindset, and other exciting and fun topics. I hope that these episodes inspire you, uplift you, and equip you with the knowledge and tools to live your best life. Are you ready to get started? Let's do it. Welcome back, veggie lovers, to another episode of Veggie Doctor Radio. I am so happy to be with you today. Have to admit, life has gotten very, very busy. And I hate saying the word busy, but it's true. I've changed my schedule at the office. I'm seeing patients more frequently. So I have less time to play and dabble in the art of podcasting. So things are going to change a little bit. I'm going to be doing more monologues just because I can squeeze those in here and there. I am literally squeezing this one in the day before it airs, which is stressful for me. And so I hope to sit down and batch a bunch of these. I do have some more interviews coming up, but I'm just not going to be able to do interviews as frequently because I'm working more. It makes it really difficult, especially when I'm interviewing busy experts to align to busy schedules and honor people's time off and their family time and try to make time for my own rest. Fall is coming. You may have heard me say before that I am very tied to the seasons in the spring and the summer. I can't stop going. I can't stop. My brain is buzzing. And as fall and winter come, 
I start to sense this natural pull to slow down and I just can't help it. If I try to do more than what my body's telling me to do, it feels awful. And so right now, my body, the seasons, is starting to tell me to start slowing down, start doing less, let it be easy, let it flow. I wish I could feel like that all year round, but at least I'm honoring the pool to do it in the fall and winter, so it's coming. My commitment is to still have weekly episodes. If I miss one or two here and there, we're just going to re-air past episodes that I think are helpful, especially because I know that I get new listeners all the time. Thank you, new listeners, for being here. And thank you so much for all my veterans who have been here from the beginning. Thank you for being part of Veggie Doctor Radio from the beginning. And you probably benefit from re-listening to some of the episodes. So we will handpick those to re-air if needed. But I'm going to try no matter what to have a weekly episode. It's just going to shift. I'm going to have more monologues now rather than interviews, and we will definitely have those expert interviews in there, hand-selected, really good ones to give you some great information and so that I can continue learning as well. The problem with monologues for me though is that I'm a perfectionist and I feel like I have to have everything perfect before I record. This episode actually is going to turn into two episodes because I went a little bit wild. So this episode is about intuitive eating and whether vegans can practice intuitive eating. The way that it came about is that one of the subscribers to my newsletter sent me an email, which I'm going to read to you in a little bit, with such great insights and such great questions that I knew I wanted to address it, but it was going to be too much for one email In addition, I knew that if I spent all that time replying to this person via email, I might as well tell everybody. So that is why it's turned into not just one, but two podcast episodes. So let's start with the email. But before I read it, please send me emails. Yami, Y-A-M-I, at dryami.com, spelled out, D-O-C-T-O-R-Y-A-M-I.com. If you're on my newsletter, all you have to do is hit reply to the newsletter. And if you want me to answer one of your questions on a podcast episode, or you have specific topics that you want me to address, on this podcast, by all means, send them to me because that's gonna help me too direct the different episodes as the time passes to make sure that I'm meeting your needs, I'm answering your questions, and we're having fun together. So here is the email. Hi, Dr. Yami. First of all, thank you for the very valuable and useful information you share in your newsletters. I have a question regarding intuitive eating and veganism and would love to hear your views on the topic. I have the feeling it's tricky to talk about intuitive eating to a vegan community and that a balancing act has to be made between IE and vegan nutrition. Your newsletter below is a good example of that. For example, you explain, quote, how much greens should we eat, unquote, quantifying the number of portions that is right to eat. This seems counteracting what IE is, trusting our bodies to know what they need and in which quantities, rather than following external sources for telling us what we need to eat and how much. Other IE experts that I follow, parentheses, they are not specialized in veganism, never go into explaining what quantities of what we should eat. They just say to make sure to design meals with the different food groups. I've read the intuitive eating book by Evelyn Triboli and Ellen Satter's book, Secrets of Feeding a Healthy Family, and they never say which quantities of which food needs to be eaten. 
Furthermore, they say that nutrition is the least important part of IE and feeding a healthy family. They focus on the importance of quote, how to eat rather than quote, what to eat. So my question is, do you believe IE for veganism work differently? Cannot we never be fully intuitive as vegans as opposed to meat eaters? It seems that non-vegans can truly allow themselves to eat what they want without overthinking it and that it won't affect their health as research provides the evidence that health is much more than what we eat. It's how we eat. It's also about sleep, exercise, happiness, low stress levels, socializing. On the other hand, when I read your newsletter, it seems that a vegan cannot fully practice food freedom and IE. They need to follow some food rules if they want to be healthy. I'd love to hear more from you on that topic. Do you believe a vegan cannot fully practice intuitive eating? Looking forward to hearing your thoughts. Kind regards, Lisa. Lisa, thank you so much for this email because it's spurred weeks and weeks and weeks of thinking on my part. I have been thinking about this for weeks and how I want to address this because literally I have a lot to say. So much that it has to be two episodes long and these are probably gonna be long episodes. First of all, yes, absolutely vegans can practice intuitive eating. I believe that vegans can practice intuitive eating, but intuitive eating is often misunderstood. First of all, gonna go into that. And many people, omnivores, flexitarians, vegetarians, vegans, do not practice intuitive eating. Secondary to diet culture. Another thought on that is that intuitive eating isn't morally superior. Not everybody who does not practice intuitive eating actually experiences suffering. I'll get into that. In addition, vegans and omnivores can benefit from nutrition knowledge. So I'm gonna take this in two parts. First of all, I'm going to go through a lot of definitions of what intuitive eating is, what it isn't, my thoughts on nutrition knowledge. And then the second part, I'm going to talk about veganism, restrained eating, and how you may want to approach this as a vegan or a plant-based eater, or however you identify, this is going to help you approach this concept of intuitive eating and what Lisa said, food freedom, from whichever way of eating you follow or however you identify, okay? But let's go ahead and get started. First of all, intuitive eating, because it is so misunderstood. What is it? From intuitiveeating.org, a post by Evelyn Triboli, who is one of the founders of the concept and the system, the principles of intuitive eating. This is what she writes on a blog post, quote, intuitive eating is a personal process of honoring health by listening and responding to the direct messages of the body in order to meet your physical and psychological needs. It is an evidence-based mind-body health approach comprised of 10 principles and created by two dietitians, Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch in 1995. The 10 principles of intuitive eating are reject the diet mentality, honor your hunger, make peace with food, challenge the food police, discover the satisfaction factor, feel your fullness, cope with your emotions with kindness, respect your body, movement, feel the difference, and finally honor your health with gentle nutrition. Okay, so that comes from Evelyn Triboli, 
Here is the latest edition of the book, Intuitive Eating, A Revolutionary Anti-Diet Approach by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. So they are two dietitians. They wrote the first edition in 1995, but they are working on this concept since the 80s. This is not, this has been around a while. It's not a brand new thing, but I want to read a few quotes from their book. This is from the introduction. Our book became a bridge between the growing anti-diet movement and the health community. How do you reconcile forbidden food issues and still eat nutritiously while not dieting? Another quote, the problem is that any focus on weight loss will sabotage your ability to reconnect with your body's intuitive eating signals. When you focus on weight, it places your attention on external measures for eating, such as the portions of foods, the macros of food, rather than connecting you with internal cues. And they also say intuitive eating is a compassionate self-care eating framework that treats all bodies with dignity and respect. So see the themes here are anti-diet, rejecting the diet culture, taking the emphasis, taking the focus off of weight loss. This came about because of the focus on weight loss that these dietitians were seeing in their practices. They were getting patients referred to them from other doctors with the goal of weight loss. They saw patients coming with an obsession for weight loss, but guess what was happening? They may be successful at losing the weight. They came crawling back again and again and again, not able to sustain it. They were blaming themselves. They were miserable. They were suffering. And so this is how this came about. That's why in the subtitle, it says a revolutionary anti-diet approach. Nowhere in the definition of intuitive eating does it say that a person should know what is health promoting. It is a mind-body approach. Like they said, it is a way that you become more mindful of the signals in your body and you are able to honor your hunger and your satiety. You are able to pay attention to those instances where you may be emotionally eating more than you would like to. Let's talk about diet because I think that this is also misunderstood. So let's take the definition from online Oxford languages. Noun, the kinds of food that a person, animal, or community habitually eats. So that's when we say, this is the diet of the elephant, you know, the, the natural diet of the elephant is this and this and this, the natural diet of an alligator or whatever. So that's one way that we use the word diet. Another word that we use the word diet, which is very common in our society, is a special course of food to which one restricts oneself either to lose weight or for medical reasons. And finally, a verb, restrict oneself to small amounts or special kinds of food in order to lose weight. When I use the word diet, I'm talking specifically about that. I am talking about restricting food in order to lose weight. And that is what these dietitians are talking about when they say anti-diet approach. What is gentle nutrition? So that is the last principle. And Lisa, you are right. They do emphasize everything else before they specifically talk about nutrition. But you have to understand that the people that come to intuitive eating, as I did several years ago, have been suffering for a long time. Some for maybe a few months or years, some for decades like I was. And the way that our psychology works 
is that if we continue to focus on external things, we may not fully heal. But because it is one of the principles, as dietitians, they are acknowledging that knowing something about nutrition, knowing something about health-promoting foods, knowing the difference between a health-promoting food and a, quote, play food, which I love that term that they came up with, can be valuable. At the beginning of somebody's journey, if you have been so traumatized by dieting that you can't even think about the antioxidants in a leafy green, then don't. And I'll talk about that in the second podcast episode. But not everybody's at that place. So let's talk about what is gentle nutrition as defined by Evelyn Triboli and Elise Resch. They say, quote, make food choices that honor your health and taste buds while making you feel good. Remember that you don't have to eat perfectly to be healthy. You will not suddenly get a nutrient deficiency or become unhealthy from one snack, one meal, or one day of dieting. It's what you eat consistently over time that matters. Progress, not perfection, is what counts. They also say in that same chapter, so this is chapter 15, principle 10, some people are eager to hear what the nutrition community is recommending in the realm of food to promote optimal health. So we'll offer suggestions. Please be sure to take out of the following sections what suits you and be sure to let go of any guilt feelings that might emerge if you find that this information triggers any discomfort. In fact, if you find yourself being triggered while reading this section, it might be best to skip this chapter until you feel ready. That's exactly what I said before. Not everybody's ready. Some people are so traumatized. I mean, traumatized for years, decades, traumatized that they cannot read anything about nutrition without feeling guilty, without feeling like they need to go on a diet, so forth and so on. But not everybody's at that place. Some people would really benefit from hearing nutrition information. And in this chapter, they do talk about what different things they would recommend. Eat enough fruits and vegetables, they write. Eat enough grains, preferably half of which are whole. They say eat enough fish. Drink enough fluids, primarily water. They talk about the difference between processed foods, not processed foods, and to focus on nutrient-dense foods, protein-rich foods, quality fats, as well as whole foods. They have a little chart in here that talks about the different phytochemicals and what fruits and vegetables have those or contain those different phytochemicals. And so there's lots of examples here of where they do make recommendations on what you may want to focus on, especially if you have no clue if you've healed from the trauma or if you're healing because intuitive eating for those people who were chronic dieters for a long time is a journey. So it may take time in your healing journey to get to that place. So that is what gentle nutrition is. Basically what they're saying is, yes, you can benefit from having knowledge, but integrate that into the way that you eat. Do not neglect satisfaction enjoyment from eating and also tune into your body. So if you read that nuts are super healthy and we need to eat nuts every day for longevity or whatever, and you eat nuts and they make your stomach hurt, tune into that. Just because somebody says you should eat nuts doesn't mean you have to eat nuts if it doesn't make you feel good or if it makes you feel bad. 
things like that. That is what gentle nutrition is. You are integrating information. You're using this amazing brain that can do those things to be mindful, take in information, process it, decide what you want to keep and what you're going to reject at this current time because it is a journey and it's an evolution. So the way you eat right now may not be the same way you eat in five years. As you evolve, as the world changes around you, as you discover new and amazing foods. And now for a very important message. Hey, veggie lover, if you are looking for free resources to guide you on your plant-based and healthy living journey, go to dryami.com forward slash free for tons of free downloadable PDFs. Hundreds of people have taken advantage of my tips to help them reduce meat and dairy consumption, navigate eating out, and build satisfying plant-based meals. Download one or download them all. And don't forget to share with friends and family. DrYami.com forward slash free. And now back to the episode. What intuitive eating isn't? This is so important because it's misinterpreted. In fact, there's somebody I follow on social media, Instagram, that had this huge rant about how they didn't agree with intuitive eating. And it was obvious to me by what they said that they had no clue what intuitive eating is. They took the misinterpreted view, which is very common, and that's what they were reacting to. You could tell that this person didn't know what it is because most people think intuitive eating means eating whatever you want, whenever you want. In addition to that, this really happens a lot. A lot of people think intuitive eating means that you should know exactly what to eat based upon cravings and that that translates into you should eat this because you're deficient in this thing. And so like we have to have some sort of psychic ability to know what we should eat at all times. And that's also not what intuitive eating means. It's not automatically knowing what are the health benefits of food. It's not automatically knowing exactly what your body needs at all times. That's not what it means. Intuitive eating is those principles that are set up to reject the diet culture that is causing people to eat based on external measures, usually calorie control, portion control, macronutrient counting, those kinds of things. So it's trying to help you unlearn those things so that you can trust yourself, trust your body, honor your hunger, honor your satiety, take in some nutrition knowledge and integrate all of that together to come up with the way that you wanna eat over time because of it's an evolution. Progress, not perfection. Okay, so that's intuitive eating isn't you eat whatever you want, whenever you want, and you automatically know everything that you need to know about nutrition. That's not what it is. Okay, so that's intuitive eating. Now let's move on to another author that Lisa brought up, Ellen Satter. Ellen Satter, she, she's not an intuitive eating person. She is a dietitian that has started her own thing. And she started writing books in the 80s, amazing books, by the way, great concepts, which I use every day in my pediatric practice. Thank you so much, Ellen Satter, I love you. And it's similar to intuitive eating. There's a lot of similarities and the intent is similar, I think. 
but it's not exactly the same thing. So let's talk about Ellen Satter. So she has four books that she started writing a long time ago, but I'm going to quote from the book called Child of Mine, Feeding with Love and Good Sense, which was published in 2000. So what does Ellen Satter say about types of foods? So what does she say? This is, like I said, Child of Mine. This is page 336. Take in mind that this was published 21 years ago now. That seems amazing to me because 2000 doesn't seem like it was that long, but it was a long time ago. Okay, what foods to offer at family meals? Adults are the ones who know the most about the food that is in the world. Children grow up to eat what their parents eat. Letting what the child will readily accept dictate the family menu is like letting the child drive the family car. Okay, so she's saying children, even though we're supporting, we're encouraging, we are protecting this intuitive sense. What she's saying is that children aren't automatically going to know what is best for them, what is healthy for them. On page 338, quote, in feeding children or adults for that matter, I find food guidelines to be more helpful and goals more achievable if I use them to define nutritional minimums, the nutritional floor, if you will. The nutritional minimum is the amount of food needed from each of the food groups to have a nutritionally adequate diet. It sounds to me like she's saying there should be a certain amount of food. She goes on to list bread, cereal, rice, pasta group, six servings, fruit group, two servings, vegetable group, three servings, fruit and vegetable groups put together, five servings, meat, poultry, fish, dry beans, eggs, nuts groups, two servings, milk, yogurt, cheese group, two servings. Remember, this was written in 2000. She even has a little table here that shows portion sizes for children and the nutritional minimums. And then she has this thing called the mother principle. I emphasize the rituals of good meal planning that if you were lucky, you learned at your mother's table, what I call the mother's principle. She goes on to say, a meal needs to have some protein. It also needs a starch, a vegetable, a good source of calcium. At breakfast, milk may do double duty as a source of protein and calcium. She goes on to say, an important part of the mother principle is enjoyment. Food has to taste good or nobody will want to eat it. Choose foods you like. Take your time learning to like new foods and cook using enough salt and fat to make food pleasant. So it looks to me and it sounds to me like she is talking about certain foods and how much. The key with Ellen Satter is this division of responsibilities though. Our job as parents, so taking this to pediatrics now, which I say 30 million times a day, our job as parents is to decide what, when, and where. So we choose the foods, we plan the menus, we prepare the meals until our kids are old enough, old enough to help us, of course. And our child decides if and how much. So we are the ones choosing to develop and design these nutritionally adequate meals that are also delicious and satisfying. They shouldn't be boring, bland, you know, those kinds of things. We're still integrating all those factors, you have to know some stuff. You have to understand based on research, based on evidence, based upon what we know to date, 
which is not everything. These are things I should consider, be mindful of, including without an emphasis on perfectionism. At the end, in the appendix in Ellen Satter's book, she has food guides and portion sizes. This was back when they still used the food pyramid, y'all. Wow, we've come a long way. 21 years, we've come a long way. She also goes into a very long rant, which I'm not gonna read about how all kids need to drink milk. Do you think I agree with that one? I don't know what she would say now, but she also says that she didn't think that veganism was sustainable and it had to be super carefully planned and in order to be safe for children. So that was 21 years ago, Ellen Satter. I love this person. She did amazing, she has done amazing work and I use it. We have to pick and choose based upon our lifestyles what's gonna work for us, okay? So that is intuitive eating, that's Ellen Satter. Let's talk about diet culture because some people thankfully may not really have dealt with this as much because maybe they haven't gone on a diet or had to even think about this in their lives. But I would say that the majority of people have experienced this. I know I did for a long time. So let's talk about diet culture and I am just pulling out some excerpts from Intuitive Eating, the fourth edition. This is page 26. What chapter is this? Chapter two, hitting diet bottom. So diet culture worships thinness and equates it to health and moral virtue. Sound familiar to anybody? Promotes weight loss as a means of attaining higher status. Mm-hmm, yep. Demonizes certain ways of eating while elevating others, which means you are forced to be hyper vigilant about your eating, ashamed of making certain food choices and distracted from your pleasure, your purpose, and your power. Oppresses people who don't match up with its supposed picture of quote health, which disproportionately harms women, femmes, trans folks, people in larger bodies, people of color, and people with disabilities, damaging both their mental and physical health. That's why in some ways intuitive eating, health at every size, is a social justice movement. So understand this, understand the history of why this evolved, understand what we're living in today as we start to acknowledge, welcome, integrate people with different backgrounds, different beliefs, different gender identities, different cultures, why this becomes more and more important. They also say on page 28, quote, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be healthy and feel good. The problem is that sneaky diet culture has hijacked the word health. Health has become synonymous with weight, losing weight or being lean, which ultimately restricts what you eat. They go on to say, weight is not a practice or behavior. Health is not a moral imperative or a requirement for being treated with dignity and respect. That's so important. So that's why diet culture affects how we view our bodies, how we view food, and leads a lot of people to diet. Dieting takes you away from intuitive eating. Dieting takes you away from mindfulness. Mindfulness, that connection with your body, sensing your satiety, sensing your fullness, and that's why it's so important. Why do different people have different experiences with eating and dieting? So one thing that happens, I think, I'm just saying this for my own self because believe me, I was a chronic dieter for years, is that you see success stories. You see people that have successfully lost weight, seem super happy, 
seem to be maintaining it pretty easily maybe and remember a lot of these things are assumptions and especially now in the social media world oh my gosh all we see is everything that glitters and shines and looks perfect right so it makes that part of our brain that makes assumptions even go wilder with assumptions but i do think that there are differences because as a health coach i have worked with people that making some of these changes in their lifestyle does not seem to harm them psychologically. And there's a difference because some of us have different personalities. And I'll tell you that my personality is a very black and white perfectionistic personality. Like it's all or nothing. I, it's hard for me to be in the gray with anything in my life. People that are like me, and I'm learning this because I have family members, they can struggle with some of these things, right? So if you think that you need to be thin to be loved and accepted and that eating chocolate cake is bad for you and you eat chocolate cake and you think you're a failure and then you binge out of frustration or punishment or whatever, that was a result of the way that you think. Not everybody thinks that way. There's literally some people here on earth that are not black and white thinkers. I know some of them. And so they may have a piece of chocolate cake and they're like, oh, you know, it's fine. I'll just get back on track. It's wow, that's amazing. That's so cool that they can do that. And then there's also difference in goal achievement. Not only am I perfectionistic in black and white, but I am rigid about my goals and I wanna reach them. And some people are like, you know, I'll just get as close to it as I can. And they just tend to, some of those people tend to have more success with less suffering. <laughs> It sounds really awesome. Then there's history of your body, body dissatisfaction. I've been dieting since I was nine, feeling like you're not worthy of love, feeling like that's like the ultimate goal to achieve in life, right? Those experiences with family members. So we all have different backgrounds. And then finally, there's generational differences. People from different generations approach problems differently. It's amazing. I love to view it that I have some older clients that they're just like, okay, this is what needs to be done, then I'll do it. It's not a problem. And part of it can be generational too. So that's why sometimes we may see that some people might go on a quote diet, which is a restrictive way of losing weight and they don't have psychological consequences. I think it's possible. I think it's a very small percentage, but I think it's possible. The next concept I wanna talk about is health, well-being, and longevity. Because health comes up a lot. Health is a word that comes up in the Intuitive Eating book and Ellen Satter's book, my book too, but I am making an effort to use the word well-being more than health. Because health, even though it is something that I value and that I try to help my patients and clients achieve and maintain, it's not everybody's reality. Not everybody is born, quote, healthy. Not everybody is going to stay healthy despite all of their efforts because of genetics or whatever. Say somebody gets in a car wreck and they're on a ventilator. Would you call that healthy at that point? Was it their fault? No. So how about we use a different measure that is more achievable and is more under our control? That's where well-being comes into place because well-being, I feel that it's doing what we can to feel good, to feel at peace, to feel centered, to decrease our suffering, to decrease our pain. And there are things that we can do that is in our control regardless of our health status 
regardless of our weight status or the size of our bodies and what judgments other people place upon those. So I like to distinguish that. And then longevity is living a long life, feeling good, feeling well, feeling joyful. And I do value all of those things, but not everybody is going to achieve them all, right? There are some that are more under our control than others. There's also the difference between surviving and thriving or optimizing. And I'm going to read a quote from my book. And the reason I bring this up is because yes, it is technically possible to quote, eat whatever you want, whenever you want and survive. Cause we're awesome. The human body is amazing, amazing, amazing. I mean like literally, wow, amazing. So we can, we're omnivores. We are opportunistic omnivores. We can eat whatever. We can survive. We can survive long enough to pass down our genes. Wow, incredible. There is almost 8 billion people on this planet. Is that a sign of success? It's a sign of survival. We've made it enough, far enough to have all these babies, right? But are we thriving? And do you want to thrive? Is that a value of yours or not? Surviving versus thriving. So. I talk about this in my book, and this is in chapter six, Eating to Thrive. My book is called A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy. And I start out this chapter by saying, I did not write this book to fear monger or to cause anxiety over how different foods can lead to health problems. So I don't emphasize that kind of thing. In general, I find it more fruitful and positive to inform others of the beneficial properties of health-promoting foods and how to integrate those foods into their diet. But what I want you to keep in mind is that we live in a world full of risk. There is no way to eradicate risk or exposure to things that create damage over time. Our goal should not be to completely eliminate risk because that is currently impossible, but to understand how to maximize benefit and minimize risk. At the same time, we want to keep our relationship with food and our bodies healthy and avoid food rules that harm our mental health. Balance, flexibility, adaptability, and moderation are key. And now for a very important message. Hey mama, if you are feeling frustrated about mealtime battles, worried that your child isn't eating enough or eating enough vegetables, afraid that your child is going to get some awful deficiency or disease because of the lack of diversity in their diet, I wrote a book that might be for you. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy is available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Did you know that most children are born with the innate ability to eat the appropriate amount of food to satisfy their hunger and support appropriate growth? Despite this, parents are still anxious and confused about how much and what to feed their children. In addition, many children are labeled as picky eaters or develop behaviors such as hiding and sneaking food. There's also a growing epidemic of dieting behaviors and eating disorders beginning at alarmingly young ages. In my book, you'll learn the five pillars of healthy eating, how to apply intuitive eating through all the stages of development, lifestyle habits that support healthy eating and body image, 
troubleshooting and problem solving for picky eaters, overeating, and dieting behaviors, how to create and foster a healthy body image in your children, how exploring your own body image and relationship with food will help raise an intuitive eater, and what foods to offer your child at different stages of development. A Parent's Guide to Intuitive Eating, How to Raise Kids Who Love to Eat Healthy, available in paperback, ebook, and audiobook through all major online booksellers. Are you ready for a fresh approach to feeding your child? For more information, visit dryami.com forward slash book. And now back to the episode. Although intuitive eating does not promote restriction, forcing food, or creating strict food rules, it also does not assume that children will naturally know which foods are most health-promoting for them. It is still your job to decide what kind of food to offer. There are no perfect diets or rules you must follow. However, some foods carry more significant health benefits than others. And that's when I talk about surviving versus thriving. We've proven that we've mastered our environment, and this has led to greater and more consistent access to food and a higher chance of survival, which in turn increases the opportunity to live long enough to reproduce and pass our genes down to the next generation. It is incredible and amazing. However, survival does not guarantee optimal health or longevity. Survival does not equal thriving. More recently, humans have been interested in more than just living long enough to have children. We now want to live well until old age. We want to feel good during our time on earth. As parents, we get to choose which foods to bring into our homes to present to our families. Although humans can survive on almost any edible substance, I recommend emphasizing those foods that help us thrive. That's the difference. And as a lifestyle medicine physician, I agree with you, Lisa, that it's more than just the food we eat. I know that it is a variety of habits. Sleep is so important. Social connection is so important. Physical movement, incredibly important. All of those things are important. But I do think that nutrition is important to learn. Before I move on to the next concept, I told you it's going to be long. Hopefully I haven't bored you to death yet, but I want to put a little highlight here for healthism because it's something that I'm learning more about and I do not want to cause anybody to feel less than because of this this form of discrimination called healthism which is defining a person's worth based on their health status or their health desires because not everybody It's focused on attaining health. Not everybody wants to make that the goal of their life. But whenever we are being healthist, whenever we are practicing healthism, we are seeing health as an individual pursuit and responsibility and a belief that everybody should have that as a pursuit and a responsibility. Okay, so just be aware of that. Be aware of how it might affect people. Have conversations with your friends and family. Next concept. Why do different people have different takes? Obviously, Evelyn and Elise, they're going to spend the majority of their time talking about those first nine principles rather than the gentle nutrition. They are experts in intuitive eating because they created intuitive eating. This is their thing. 
They want to help people heal. They want to decrease suffering from recurrent dieting from people that have been taught by our society that having a smaller body is ideal, okay? That's what they talk about. That is their passion. That's their area of concentration. They've spent their entire lives. This is their life work. So that's why it's different. Some people in the plant-based community, they only talk about antioxidants. They only talk about, you know, eating certain foods for health. That is their life work. That is what their passion is. That is their experience. I am a pediatrician. I'm a lifestyle medicine physician. I'm a health coach. I'm a mother. I lived with disordered eating. I lived with yo-yo dieting for decades. And I value authenticity. So I must speak on what I believe. And I believe that nutrition does matter. And the reason it matters is because my three goals, and I really defined these goals as I was writing this book, it's helped me really focus my path in my career. What I teach people is one, I want to help children and my clients that are not children sustain and obtain health and well being. Number two, I want to prevent chronic disease and promote longevity. And number three, I want to foster body and food confidence. So I want to integrate all of these things. But first and foremost, I am a physician. I was born on this planet to become a physician. I've been talking about being a doctor since I was four. So I do emphasize helping people obtain health and well-being. That's why I talk about things the way that I do. Because I know that people come to me for that information. They want guidance. Dr. Yami, how do I this? How can I help my child this? So my recommendations, my education, my teaching comes from those goals. But also I am fully aware based upon my experiences and my journey that we have to be careful about how we talk about nutrition, how we talk about body size, because number my number three goal is to foster food and body confidence. I want the children of the next generation to not be dieting for weight loss, please. I, I want them to be focused on creating solutions for our planet so that we can live long, joyful lives instead of worrying about the size of their bodies, okay? So those are my goals. And given all of that, I am aware of the environment that we live in. And I am aware that currently we are surrounded by processed food, fast food restaurants. And I'm not judging these things as bad or good. I am just saying this is our current environment. In addition, if we don't stay informed, if we just rely on what's around us all the time and just follow the crowd, then we are going to continue to fall into the same habits and behaviors that may be increasing our risk of chronic disease, early mortality, disease not feeling good. So this is why I think it's important. And I wanted to bring up this study that just came out August 10th in JAMA. It's titled Trends in Consumption of Ultra-Processed Foods Among U.S. Youths Age 2 to 19, 1999 to 2018. 
So they took the NHANES data and they analyzed it, a group of authors, Wang et al., looking at what are kids eating under the age of 19 in the United States. And we are now up to 67% of calories in children in the United States from ultra processed foods. So, and it's gone up. I think I'm looking, I should have highlighted this, but I think it's gone up about six or 7% over time in those years. Yeah, 61.4% to 67% increase. So from 1999 to 2018, the estimated percentage of total energy from consumption of ultra processed foods increased from 61.4% to 67%. It's almost 6% increase in calories from ultra processed foods. Whereas the percentage of total energy from consumption of unprocessed or minimally processed foods decreased from 28.8 to 23.5%. So more ultra processed foods, less unprocessed foods. And for those of you who are not familiar on the difference between processed, ultra processed, unprocessed, I like to give little examples. So a whole food or unprocessed food would be like taking an apple from a tree. You haven't done anything to it. You just took it like it was from nature and you ate it. That is unprocessed whole. Minimally processed, you took that apple, you put it in a blender, you didn't peel it or anything. That's minimally processed. You're breaking it down. Moderately processed would be like if you took that apple and you squeezed the juice out of it. So you're not adding anything to it, but you're taking away the fiber, you're taking away other nutrients because you're just taking the juice out of it. Ultra processed would be Apple Jack cereal. You cannot make Apple Jack cereal at home. You don't even know what's in Apple Jack cereal. Like if someone told you, what do you think is in there? You might be able to guess some ingredients, but things are added, things are taken away. There's all kinds of artificial stuff in it and you can't make it at home. So think of ultra processed foods as foods that can only be made in a factory, they're all packaged. And I, I like to make that distinction because there are some whole foods that are packaged now, like frozen fruits and vegetables, shelf-stable beans, things like that. So I don't want you to just think exclusively packaged, unpackaged, because that gets confusing. But think of what the food went through to get to what it is now. You know, so if you have a whole food, but they put it in a box, that's still a whole food, that's fine. And it's convenient in many ways. But if they took that food, Maybe they took a little flavor from it and then they added artificial colors and flavors and salt and oil and sugar and that is an ultra processed food now. And in the United States, our children are taking 67% of calories are coming from ultra processed foods. And it's probably gonna go up because of the way that our world is changing. Hearing that information to me means that I need to do my part in making sure that my families are educated and are knowledgeable on foods and nutrition. So finally, as I wrap up this episode, I told y'all I was going to talk forever on this, is the purpose of the U.S. Food Guidelines. The reason I bring this up is because when Lisa was replying to my email, what I have been doing, if you are subscribed to my email newsletter, if you follow me on social media, Every month, I take a type of food and I talk about it. Like this last month, it was berries in August. 
It's so fun. I talk about what they are, what nutrients are in them, what health benefits they may have, how you can incorporate them into meals, and then I give a recipe or two. She was responding to the leafy green, one of the leafy green emails where I have been saying, according to the US food guidelines, what would be the recommended quantities to have? What is the US food guidelines? They're not perfect, we'll start there. But this is coming from health.gov, quote, the dietary guidelines provides evidence-based food and beverage recommendations, beverage recommendations for Americans across the lifespan. These recommendations aim to promote health and prevent chronic disease. We also use them to make policies and to feed our kids at schools and those kinds of things. They've gotten better over time for sure. More and more people have been involved that help shape these so that not only are they useful, but they're culturally appropriate, they're applicable. And I think it is getting better over time. The reason I include information about it is to give people a frame of reference because some people don't know anything about nutrition. They are just getting started. They've never thought about incorporating leafy greens into their diet. They've never thought about incorporating berries or the amazing benefits that berries have. And so I just provide that as something to think about. It's not essential. Let's not approach it with perfectionism. If you don't get some berries today, maybe it's tomorrow, maybe next week, maybe it's not berry season and you're just not gonna eat berries this month at all. That's fine. Just something to keep in mind. Like I said, we have to learn something about nutrition in order to make informed choices, especially if your goal is well-being and longevity. But if it's not, then don't pay attention to this stuff at all. Remember that how we learn to eat comes from our culture, comes from the way we were raised, comes from our environment. So it may not be the way that we want to continue to eat. If you grew up in an environment where you mostly ate fast food and processed foods, you may not want to continue to eat that. You may realize you have stomach aches and and constipation and heartburn all the time. You may not want to continue to eat like that. So you may be searching for information to help you, to guide you. Well, what should I integrate? What should I try? And you can approach these things with an open mind, curiosity, an air of experimentation. So that's why I include these things. And remember that what we learn to eat is what we've been exposed to. This is the same for us as adults as it is for kids. If you have kids, remember that they learn to like foods that they are consistently and repeatedly exposed to. No other way, no other way. And that's how we are too, okay? So, The U.S. food guidelines are not perfect. They are tainted by private interests, big food corporations. It is getting better, but I include those as a way to just give you a little more information. This is the end of part one of my very long answer to Lisa's question. Again, Lisa, thank you so much for submitting this question. We're going to end here, and next week I will be talking about veganism, orthorexia, restrained eating, give you some information about vegans, vegetarians, and omnivores and their differences and approaches to food and some stats that I found from some studies, as well as how we can each begin to approach these issues, this knowledge, 
and how we want to integrate them into our lives. Thank you, veggie lovers, for listening. I appreciate you so much. I hope you're enjoying these monologues. Email me, yami at dryami.com, all spelled out. Let me know what you think. Give me some more ideas. I would love to serve you and what your needs are. I hope that you have a very fantastic day. Hey, veggie lover. I hope that you loved today's episode. Will you take a second and do me a huge favor? Please subscribe to my podcast so that you never miss an episode. You're the reason I'm here and I want to share it all with you. Thank you for listening and have a plantastic day.